Before I start with the instruction period, I just wanted to say a little something about anatta and impermanence. <coughs> Contemplating the impermanent, unsatisfactory, empty nature of the world can be mm, a bis- bit disconcerting. Maybe that's putting it a little too mildly. It might freak you out. This is actually a good thing because it's certainly a sign that you're seeing what's going on quite clearly. If your insights into anicca, dukkha, anatta you find disturbing, the thing to keep in mind is Nothing has changed but your understanding of how it's always been. All of the skills that you've had for decades for dealing with reality are still intact. And the world hasn't changed. (laughs) Okay, it's always been this impermanent. It's always been this unsatisfactory. It's always been this coreless. All that's changed is your recognition of it. (coughs) That recognition of the impermanent, unsatisfactory, empty nature is going to enable you to deal with the world better. If you can act in harmony with the way things are, even if they're not as pleasant as you used to believe they were. It's just going to go better. All right? So if you find yourself freaked out by the depth of your insights, the key thing is to remember all of your skills are still intact. And it's you who've changed, not the world. And you've actually changed to become more skillful at dealing with the world. So hopefully that can be helpful for you. So this morning, I want to talk about a practice that the Buddha talks about quite frequently, gave quite a lot of emphasis to. And this is Vedana practice. The word Vedana is usually translated as feeling or feelings, which is an absolutely horrible translation. It's actually literally quite accurate, but because English uses the word feelings to mean emotions, uh, Vedana, teachings on Vedana get screwed up all the time. Um, Vedana does not mean emotions. If you find someone teaching that, probably what they're teaching is accurate. It just doesn't have anything to do with Vedana. We have the four establishments of mindfulness, sometimes called the four foundations of mindfulness. First one is rupa, right? Kaya, I believe it's given as kaya, it's body, right? This very body, those very bodies, okay? Second one is vedna. The third one is mind states. Mind states includes emotions. So if somebody's talking about working with your emotions, they're talking about third establishment of mindfulness. And the fourth is, well, dharmas. We could say phenomena. But the second one, vedna, we actually do have an English word that's a fairly decent translation. It's called valence. But not many people know valence, so it doesn't work as a really good translation either. The word Vedna means your initial categorization of a sensory input. And there are only three buckets. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. The neither pleasant nor unpleasant is often referred to as neutral, just to save a few letters. All right. But what it means is what you're experiencing, you don't find pleasant and you don't find it unpleasant. It's neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And the Buddha made this the second establishment of mindfulness. The second thing that 
you really have to pay attention to. Now, why is it so important? Well, you got born and like most people, you probably got handed an instruction manual. Well, maybe you didn't get handed the manual, but you figured out what it says. It says three things. Seek pleasure, avoid pain, live forever. <laughs> this is not the best way to do things. You know, back in my hippie days, it was, if it feels good, do it, which turned out not to be the best advice, right? There were some things that felt good that, you know, just wasn't so wise to do, right? So, but this is what seems to run our lives. We go running after pleasure and we go running away from anything that's unpleasant. And we try and manipulate our lives so we are maximizing the pleasure and minimizing the unpleasant. In the commentaries, they talk about the three psychological types. They're the greedy type. Those are the people that you know, op optimize for getting more pleasure. And they're the aversive types. And those are the ones who optimize for avoiding the unpleasant. And then they're the deluded types. And those are the ones aren't quite sure what they're supposed to be doing. Of course, it turns out the greedy type and the aversive type are equally deluded as the deluded types. It's just that their delusion manifests in a particular way. It turns out that trying to maximize pleasure and minimize the unpleasant doesn't really work for leading the best life. Uh, sometimes you actually have to do the no pain, no gain thing. You actually have to get in there and work. You have to face the unpleasant aspects of life and deal with them. You can't just run away from them and hide. <coughs> and sometimes running after the pleasure you know, short-term gain, long-term loss. Uh, we now have an epidemic of obesity in this country, right? <laughs> the obesity didn't come about strictly because they're advertising, you know, high fructose corn syrup. It came about because high fructose corn syrup produces short-term gratification, right? And people get hooked on pursuing pleasure. The Buddha says that we need to pay attention to the Vedana. In particular, in talking about dependent origination, he says that our craving, which I'm sure you all remember is a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha, our craving arises dependent on Vedana. The Vedana happens due to sense contact. Modern neuroscience has found that within one-tenth of a second of a sense stimulus, there's activity in the reptilian structure in your brain that is categorizing that as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. You could see where this could be quite useful. Uh, basically, to be alive means to respond to your environment. You know, plants respond to their environment. They lean towards the sunlight. <clears throat> I don't think we can say they find sunlight pleasant. It's that cells growing in the dark grow faster than those in the sunlight, and therefore it leans into the sunlight. All right, this is just evolution. Uh, but they respond to their environment in positive and negative ways. They send their roots down looking for the minerals and the water they need, right? And it's been said they like Beethoven and Bach and don't like acid rock, right? Maybe the like is a little bit too anthropomorphic, but never mind. Amoebas, one-celled animals. <clears throat> you put some food in a solution where there are amoebas and they'll go towards it. You put some salt in and they'll go away from it. So at a very, very low level of life, <coughs> the, 
there is this positive and negative responding. And certainly you get up to your dog or your cat, they're able to respond to pleasant and unpleasant. And we find ourselves doing that as well. This is part of what it means to be alive. It happens, as I say, in the old brain, in the reptilian structure. <clears throat> it's not under your control. If I had a chalkboard up here and I said, okay, I'm going to scrape my fingernails down the blackboard and I'm going to give everybody a chance to experience it as pleasant. You're just going to have to work on this until everybody gets it as pleasant. Well, you'd kill me, right? Because you can't control that. It turns out that the fingernails on the blackboard produces disharmony. And you're wired so that you just find something that doesn't have a sound, that doesn't have a ratio of small whole numbers in the overtones. You find it unpleasant. Okay, that's just physically how you're wired, right? So you can't control the Vedana. What you can control is your reaction to the Vedna. But you don't have any chance of controlling your reaction to the Vedna unless you're aware of the Vedna. And that's where the second establishment of mindfulness comes in. And the Buddha gives us instructions. And how does one abide contemplating Vedna as Vedna? Here, experiencing a pleasant Vedna one knows that one is experiencing a pleasant Vedana. Experiencing a painful Vedana, one knows that one is experiencing a painful Vedana. The words are actually sukha and dukkha. Right? Now I've been translating it as pleasant and unpleasant, but literally in Pali it's sukha, joyful, happy, and dukkha, unpleasant, suffering. Either way. Experiencing a Vedana that is neither painful nor pleasant, one knows that one is experiencing a Vedana that is neither painful or pleasant. So you need to know what the Vedana is that you're experiencing. Every sensory input is going to give you a Vedana. Maybe the majority of them are giving you neutral Vedana. What we tend to do with neutral Vedana is like, okay, ignore I don't need to run towards it. I don't need to run away from it. But when there is a sound or a sight, then there's going to be a Vedana. When there's a taste, right? You put it in your mouth, and if you don't like it, it produced unpleasant Vedana. Now, when you put food in your mouth, there's touch Vedana as well as taste Vedana. Sometimes you taste something, but the texture is really weird. And you might not like it because the texture is weird, even though the taste was good. Okay. And then there are smells, right? Pleasant, unpleasant. You probably don't notice the neutral smells. Your dog might, right? When you take your dog for a walk, you're not taking him for a walk. You're taking him for a sniff, right? Okay, that's how he's engaging with the world. We don't tend to engage in that way. We simply notice the pleasant and unpleasant smells and ignore all the rest. And there are body sensations that we get. Uh, the, the neutral body sensations we tend to ignore. Like, notice the sensations in your left foot right now. Well, you are probably ignoring your left foot until I mentioned it. And then you become aware of, you know, some slight pressure or coolness or something there. And it's probably pretty neutral. And so, yeah, okay, you've dealt with it. You don't have to do anything about it. There are also mental Vedana. Every thought and emotion and memory produces a Vedana, just like the ringing of a bell produces a Vedana. These are the Vedna that we get caught up in the most frequently. There's the initial Vedna, such as a word. And then you take in that word and it brings up memories and the memories are unpleasant and your whole experience is unpleasant. 
the word that generated it probably was a pretty neutral Vedna. But your reaction downstream was to the associations that came with that word. And you miss the Vedana of the word, and you're only seeing the Vedana of your reaction downstream. I can give you an example. <coughs> I'm going to say some words, and hopefully they'll paint a picture in your mind. And you, I want you to try and notice the Vedana of my voice, which is probably going to be neutral or maybe a little unpleasant. And the Vedna of the picture that the words bring to your mind. Okay? Tall trees. Green grass. Big bushes. President bushes. Some difference in that last one? Okay. I tried to say the word bushes exactly the same in both instances. The Vedna you experience is due to your mental sensory input, the memory that comes up, and the reactions, the, the sankara, if we're talking about the aggregates, the mental activities generated by me vibrating some air in my throat, that vibration going across the room, vibrating your ear and getting interpreted in your brain and then reactions coming down from that. <coughs> we often miss the initial external Vedana, the Vedana of the sound or the sight or whatever. And we're totally caught up in our reactions to it. You don't have any control over the Vedna from the external world. As I said, I scrape my fingernails down the blackboard and it's just going to sound horrible. You put sugar on your tongue and it's going to produce a pleasant sensation. What you have control over is your reactions. And this is, this is what the Buddha is actually trying to teach us. Between the time there's the experience of a Vedana and the craving sets in, which can lead to dukkha, you got to get in there and work with your reactions so that you don't get caught in the craving. And the closer you can get in there to the actual sensory input, the better. If you leave it alone and just let it trickle on, you're pretty much caught up in your reactions before you have a clue of what's going on. This is why the Buddha made it very important. So when you have a sensory experience, it generates a Vedana, and he says, experiencing a pleasant Vedana, <laughs> one knows that one is experiencing a pleasant Vedana. And the same for the other three types. So this practice is about really being there and being aware of the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral for your sensory input. Now, there's actually a more advanced practice that's given in the Satipatthana Sutta as well. Experiencing a pleasant sensual Vedana one knows that one is experiencing a pleasant sensual Vedana. Experiencing a pleasant non-sensual Vedana, one knows that one is experiencing a pleasant non-sensual Vedana. Experiencing a painful sensual Vedana, experiencing a painful non-sensual Vedana, experiencing a sensual Vedana that is neither painful nor pleasant, experiencing a non-sensual Vedana that is neither painful or pleasant. One knows what one is experiencing. Now, the word uh, translated here as sensual literally 
means with flesh. And the scholars are still debating exactly what that means. One interpretation is that the with flesh Vedna are Vedna that arise through the five fleshy senses, the five external senses, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the body. And the without flesh is your mental Vedna. Right? And as I said, it's important to distinguish between the two. There's the Vedna of the touch sensation, and there's the Vedna of your reaction. You're getting a massage, and the masseuse is working really deep. Okay? And it's, it's so deep, it's unpleasant. But it actually would be good if you could release that tension. Right? Can you put your attention in the experience and see the unpleasant touch sensation and not go reacting and squirming off the table and let the release actually happen? Right? Because the, oh, I've got to make this stop, that's your downstream reaction. It's just this unpleasant touch. Can you just be with that as it is without contracting around it? So one interpretation of sensual is the five external senses, and non-sensual is the internal mind sense. The more orthodox interpretation is that sensual is worldly, and non-sensual is spiritual. So spiritual pleasant Vedna would be uh, being generous, makes you feel nice in a spiritual context, that pleasant feeling, pleasant sensual Vedana, metta practice, piti and sukha in the jhanas, spiritual unpleasant Vedana, you get a deep insight into the impermanent nature of reality and it starts freaking you out. Yeah, that's unpleasant, but it's actually going to be quite helpful. Right? Don't run away. You know, remember you still have all of your skills intact. And a spiritual neutral Vedna, uh, equanimity. Very much equanimous and very much recommended on the spiritual path. So, this is Vedna. This is what the Buddha was talking about for the second establishment of mindfulness. So how do you go about practicing this? Well, you can do it as a formal meditation practice. I would suggest spending some time generating some concentration, some indistractability. If you are skilled at the jhanas, it can be even more helpful. And then come out of your concentration practice and open up your senses. I'd say start off with your eyes closed, right? And, and just listen and be aware of touch sensations. And you're, you're just, you know, whenever there's a sound, you're trying to notice, was that pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? You know, Look through your body and notice the pressure. Is that pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? Feel the breeze. Is that pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? Okay. Now, it's so nice and quiet in this room, not much going on, that maybe you won't actually get many sensory inputs to work with. But when the bell rings and you go outside, there's tons of sensory input coming in. And so what you're trying to do when you're doing Vedana practice is simply be aware of your categorizing of the sensory input into the three buckets of pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And just notice what's going on. I'd say start working with sound. That's probably the easiest one to work with. If there are smells, that's also quite easy to work with. Touch sensations are not that difficult. 
right? So especially when you go outside and there's a breeze and there's the sunshine uh, and there's walking and you feel the stuff under your feet. Yeah, so there's those to work with. After you sort of get a sense of working with this, try it when you eat. Yeah, you sit down, you load your fork, and you put the food in your mouth. And now notice the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral aspects of both the taste and the touch. If it's really tasty, you might not even notice how pleasant it is. You're just lost in, oh, that's really good, without actually noticing the pleasant taste. You might have to try multiple times. Okay, so, but eating, there's a huge source of Vedna. And given what we're eating here, it's going to be a lot of pleasant Vedana. Right? Yeah, you pick up your tea, it's a little too hot, burns your lip. Right, okay, unpleasant. And then the last one to work with is the visual Vedana. Remember, the eye only sees colored shapes. That's it. It doesn't see tree or person or food or anything. All that's in your mind. It's just seeing colored shapes. However, our minds are so fast, we see a colored shape and we immediately identify what it is. And then we start reacting to what we've identified. And we miss the Vedana of the colored shapes. Uh, a great place to practice visual Vedana is a modern art museum. You go in, you look at some painting, you have no idea what you're looking at. But there are colors and shapes. <laughs> These colors and shapes, do they fit or not? Uh, it can be quite, quite interesting. The house I grew up in, we moved there when I was four. And in the kitchen, somebody had laid large, dark blue squares and small, dark orange squares on the floor. It's pretty hideous. So we move in. And my mom gets up to fix breakfast, and she has to light the pilot light on the stove. And she bends over, and she almost throws up. She thinks she's pregnant, right? And next morning, same thing. The third morning, she was so nauseated, she couldn't get the pilot light lit. So she asked my dad to do it. When he bent over to light the pilot light, he almost threw up. He knew he wasn't pregnant. The, f the floor, first thing in the morning, was at two different heights. And if you bent over and you filled your vision with blue and orange squares, it was literally nauseating. <laughs> the Vedna was so horrible. Okay. Luckily, eventually, they tore out the floor. But I quickly learned, don't look down if you go in the kitchen when you get out of bed. <laughs> right? So, you know, playing with visual Vedana often means that you need to, to find something that doesn't have a story associated with it. So a modern art museum is a great place to try it. The last thing I want to point out is I've said that it's not under your control. The, the raw Vedana isn't under your control. But then you think about those horrible vegetables you ate as a kid, and the fact that they taste pretty good now. So things can change. When I was a kid, I grew up in Mississippi, and Coke was king. In fact, Coke was king to the extent that if you wanted to offer somebody uh, a soft drink, you would say, what kind of Coke you want? You want a Coke or a 7-Up or a Pepsi? You know, Coke was the generic term. Um, you want a Dr. Pepper? We had Dr. Pepper, but to me, Dr. Pepper was weird. You know, it looked like Coke, but it didn't taste like Coke. It was most unpleasant. And then one summer, I was working for an agricultural experiment station in the weed control department. 
And what they did is they sent a bunch of high school kids out to chop cotton. Now chop cotton, you don't chop the cotton, you chop the weeds, right? And they would time us how long it took to chop the weeds out of a row and they could see how good their weed killer was. But sometimes a message needed to be taken back to headquarters. And you might have to, if you were taking the message, walk half mile across the fields to headquarters. This was a wonderful assignment when you got it because guess what? Headquarters was air conditioned. You know, outside it was 96 degrees and 80% humidity. But even better in the basement of headquarters was a Coke machine, <laughs> right? So I get to take the message and you know, I give it to the guys in the office and they give me the message to take back and I'm downstairs, I got my dime out and there's no Cokes, it's only Dr. Pepper. I have been tasting that Coke you know, for a half an hour walking across the fields and talking to the guys upstairs. I put my dime in, I bought a Dr. Pepper. It was so good. <laughs> I finally could appreciate it for what it was. I wasn't reacting to the taste, this is not Coke. I was reacting to it, what it actually tasted like, which is good, and I preferred Dr. Pepper ever since. All right, so. <laughs> Sometimes things can change. Another example I had was with hearing. When I went to Bali, my friend said, we've well, we got to go to a gamelan concert. And I was like, okay. So we went to the next village where they were having a gamelan concert. Well, gamelan music doesn't use the do-re-mi scale. It's got a different scale. And so they started playing this, and it was weird, you know. Turns out music involves a lot of mental processing. And because I wasn't familiar with their scale, I couldn't process the music properly. It's made, it's basically xylophones, you know, hammers striking things that ring. And each strike was producing a pleasant sensation. But because it was coming at me in a different way, I wasn't able to process it till about the third piece. And then my brain figured it out and it was beautiful. And I really have appreciated gamelan music ever since. With music, there's the actual sound hitting your ear, but there's also the context of it. What came before it, and the anticipation of what's going to happen next. And that's part of musical Vedana. And it's really difficult to separate it out unless somebody hits a discordant note and then you notice the unpleasant Vedana. So there's the Vedana of the actual sensory input, but there's all the processing that goes on around it. And all of this is important because we tend to be led around by the nose with our Vedana, running after the pleasant, running away from the unpleasant, and ignoring the neutral. So the practice is to get quiet and then notice your sensory input and your reaction of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So let's try that.
Are you noticing the Vedna of the bell? It's a really good practice every time the bell rings. Just, okay, drop into the Vedna of the bell. So we got a couple of minutes here if there are any questions about Vedana or Vedana practice. I notice that um, I essentially don't like everything. <laughs> so it got me to, uh, to wonder if there is a, a connection between sort of a, a personality trait of sort of a worldview of like, don't like, for example, if an optimistic person might hear a sound and have a good association as opposed to someone with a critical or a doubting mind hearing the same sound and just wired. I'm just wondering how much our wiring influences that perception. Yeah, I, we are definitely wired different, but I wouldn't use the word wired, you know, as a f computer programmer. I would say we... We have similar hardware, but we're running different programs. So you're running the aversive program. I'm running the greed program. Um, I'm guessing that the bell sounded pleasant. It's about association, so... No, no, no. The sound of the bell. Was that pleasant? Ring the bell again. Okay, that's the hardware up to that point. Everything after that is your software. Okay, the Buddha couldn't fix his hardware. He had a bad back. You know, he'd give the introduction to a Dharma talk, and then he would turn to Sariputta, Moggallana, and say, you know, please elaborate. And he'd go lie down and listen to the talk, and when it was over, he'd come out and say, if I'd given the talk, that's exactly what I would have said. <laughs> Right? But he still had the bad back. Right? It was producing enough unpleasant Vedna that he couldn't give the talk. Right? The, the overcoming of dukkha is the reprogramming of the software. And so your job is to reprogram yourself so that you're not reacting, reacting, adversely to everything that happens. My job is to reprogram myself so I'm not reacting in a greedy way with everything that happens. Okay? So this is, this is what we got to do. We can't fix everything. We can't fix the hardware. The hardware is going to wear out. It's called death. Right? But you still got some control over the software. And one of the ways to work with that is to notice the sensory input and the pleasant, unpleasant reaction with, or categorization of the sensory input, and then to notice what arises after that. And notice that, oh, I'm generating a lot of negative to everything. You don't have to do that, but it's hard to reprogram, okay? One of the ways to work at reprogramming is to step back to the sensory input and see, yeah, it was just sensory input. It was a little unpleasant. I don't have to go any further. It was pleasant. I don't have to go any further. I hope that's a little bit helpful. Okay. <clears throat>